you get intense criticism and it is so healthy to get that intense criticism early because you find out where your weaknesses are and then you know that happens in april the teams present and they're usually just shell-shocked oh my god i didn't know that and it is hugely beneficial they pick themselves up they fix things if they need to be fixed they explain them better if they need to be explained better and then when they present in may they are like massively better it is almost magical how much better they are hello and welcome to the first episode of the polsky center's where are they now podcast i'm colin keely and we catch up with founders from chicago boost new venture challenge on the show We dive into their entrepreneurial journeys and get a look at the stories and struggles behind their success. The New Venture Challenge isn't just another university startup accelerator. Boost NVC is ranked alongside Y Combinator and Techstars as one of the best accelerators in the US. Many household names such as Grubhub, Braintree, and Simple Mills have come through the program. We will catch up with these founders and many more over the coming episodes. The theme of this podcast is that it takes a village. So I'll be passing the mic over to coaches, investors, and other mentors that have helped these founders along in their journey. This week is an extra special episode. We don't have founders of a startup this time. We actually have the three folks that have been instrumental in taking NVC from just an idea 25 years ago to where it is today. It is my pleasure to welcome Steve Kaplan, Ellen Rudnick, and Mark Tebby. Without further ado, here's the story of the New Venture Challenge. Uh, hey, this is Colin Keeley here. It's an honor to interview Ellen, Mark, and Steve today. So thanks so much for having me. Uh, so just to kick things off and identify everyone's voice, since we have so many people on this call, uh, you want to just both say your names and kind of what you do? I'm Ellen Rudnick, and I'm a senior advisor to the Polsky Center. And you were the first executive director of the Polsky Center. Uh, Steve Kaplan, I am the faculty director of the Polsky Center and a professor at Chicago Booth. And I'm Mark Tebby, an entrepreneur in residence at the Polsky Center and a Booth professor. So going way back, way before my time, to 1996 and the beginning of the New Venture Challenge. So uh, Steve, could you kind of set the stage? What was the state of startups in the world back then, the state of Booth you know, pre-NVC? So this was early on, this was before Booth had an entrepreneurship concentration. There were like, I think, three entrepreneurship courses in Booth, and uh, it was not, uh, entrepreneurship was uh, sort of not very central. And I had just gotten tenured and I had just started teaching entrepreneurial finance, uh, which the dean had asked me to do because someone who had been teaching it left and he wanted someone to teach it. So I was teaching entrepreneurial finance. It was like the first or second time. And uh, one of my students, Jeff Meyer, uh, popped into my office and said, well, you're you're doing entrepreneurial finance now. You know, we ought to have a, a business plan competition because, you know, one or two other schools were doing it and uh, we should do it too. And, uh, you know, I, I just started teaching and I knew nothing and uh, I said, well, yeah, I guess that's, that's a good idea. We should, we should do that. So, you know, I'll do it as long as you and the students do all the work. So what you need to do is do all the work. I will find you some judges and some money. And, uh, you know, Jeff was like, okay, it's a deal. 
and uh, we were off to do it. And it was a little bit different. So then we decided to do it. And I got judges, I got prize money. I think it was like $25,000. It was something like that. And we got students to apply. And uh, I think something like 30 teams applied. And then they went and did their plans. It wasn't a course. And at the end, we had, you know, some finalists and we had the judges and, uh, yeah, I even forget uh, exactly who won. Well, actually, the third place team was included Brian Coe, who went on to start two other companies, one of which he just took public. And at the end of it, so it was kind of put together. It wasn't, you know, so serious. And at the end of the, the competition, I asked the students, well, what did you think of it? And the students said, you know, it was a good experience, but they really didn't have enough time to work on their businesses. And they said, you know, if it had been a course, it would have been better. And so what I did the next year is I said, okay, let's do it as a course. And so 1998 or 97, 98 was the first year we actually did it as a course. And Colin, the team that won that year was called EFX. And Brian Coe was in a team called ScanDX. Correct. And what were they doing? And EFX was, EFX actually was not a bad idea. It was like electronic for, foreign exchange. And uh, it was probably a little bit before its time, but, uh, you know, it was a fintech business. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, I realize I jumped the gun a little bit here. Everyone knows you as the professor you are today. What was your background before Booth, before the NBC? I was, you know, I came to, to Booth as a finance professor. I'd done my doctoral research and dissertation on leverage buyouts. So I kind of came from the private equity area. And then I was a, a cor- I taught corporate finance. I did, you know, research, private equity, you know, mergers and acquisitions, corporate governance. And I knew nothing about startups, zero. And uh, I started you know, again, I got tenure, I think in, you know, 95, 96. And at that point, the dean said, oh, why don't you teach entrepreneurial finance? And since I knew nothing, I actually had to learn it. And uh, I went and uh, found some venture capitalists who were uh, willing to, you know, give me some training. And there were a couple, there was a first analysis in uh, Chicago and Catherine Gould at Foundation Capital in California, kind of gave, you know, were helpful in uh, teaching me. And, uh, you know, I've been learning ever since. Now I know a little bit. I I knew nothing when I started. (laughs) That's what that Harvard, Harvard undergrad and doctorate (laughs) will do for you. (laughs) And and, and Steve, until you have to make payroll, you haven't run a startup. Right, exactly. So that takes us to uh, roughly 1998. So what happened in 1998 next after that first year? So the next thing that happened, so we're running the new venture challenge and, you know, the first year we did it as a class, it was like, it was unbelievable. I was just shocked. We, we had sort of the, the first run through of running it the way we run it today. And it was just amazing how much progress the teams made. And, uh, you know, the, the teams that year, actually we had MedSpeed, which, uh, you know, Jake Crampton uh, we did a, a fireside chat with recently. He was just named uh, Entrepreneurial Alumnus of the Year. 
Then we had uh, another business that uh, ended up raising venture money and being sold a couple of years later for a hundred million bucks. So it was it was pretty amazing. And at the time, you know, Bob Hamada, who is the dean, said, you know, we need to make entrepreneurship a real thing. If we don't have entrepreneurship, we're going to get left behind at uh, the school. Uh, and he asked me, you know, would I be faculty director? You know, so somebody who like knew nothing about entrepreneurship and sort of fell into it because I was teaching it. Now I was I was the only tenured guy who has who had anything to do with entrepreneurship. So like I was, you know, the last man standing or the only the only person standing. And uh, so he said, would I run it? And I said, okay. And then I started running it, and I realized like I, you know, I can't do this myself. I've like lots of other things to do, research, teaching, whatever. I need to hire someone really good who can, you know, really run this and knows what, you know, in Ellen's case, knows what she's doing. So uh, I ended up, um, Bob said, yes, that's fine. And uh, we actually applied for some money from the Kauffman Foundation. And uh, they gave us a, a very nice grant. And we were able to use that grant to hire an executive director. And I actually looked for quite a long time. This is this is actually an interesting lesson. I kept looking until I found the person who I thought would be really good. Like there were two or three people I almost hired, and I said, "Nah, yeah, they're not they're not quite right." And then Ellen popped up, and uh, she was like perfect, and. Uh, we hired Ellen to, uh, you know, to run everything and everything that's good that's happened since is because of Ellen. And I, I just said yes to, to everything Ellen wanted to do. <laughs> so Ellen, what was your background up until that point? Well, first I must, must say Steve is, uh, is over excessive here in his compliments, but <laughs> yes, it's true. Everything I told him to do, he did. So prior to coming to Booth, I worked in the healthcare industry primarily, and I had spent 15 years in a corporate environment. And I actually was an entrepreneur. I built a business within a large healthcare company. And then I had two more entrepreneurial initiatives. I had one where I ran a small venture-backed company in the data analytics space. And then I did a startup in the medical diagnostic space. So I had about 10 years of entrepreneurial experience uh, before I came to Booth. And when we were uh, merging my medical diagnostics company with another company, and I was kind of looking around, I got wind that the University of Chicago, which was my alma mater, was looking for somebody to help them start an entrepreneurship center, which sounded kind of cool at the time. So that led me to meet with Steve Kaplan, and that was 21, 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. What was your first impression when Steve came to you with this proposal? <laughs> uh, actually. Steve didn't come to me with it. It was actually, I think it was somebody who was on the advisory board to the business school. Uh, it was a, a search consultant, I think, who was doing some pro bono work for the university. And so I met Steve a little bit later. I'm not, I think I actually might've met Bob Hamada before I talked to Steve. I'm not exactly sure how that went, but, you know, I met Steve and uh, we hit it off. And, you know, and I really recognized that our skills were quite complementary. I am not an academic by training. And one of the things that I recognized in an, that they needed in an entrepreneurship center is, you know, you can't necessarily teach entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship has to be learned, but it can be learned in an academic setting by creating 
experiential learning programs. You know, an NVC was a perfect example of an experiential learning program. And so by combining the academics with this experiential learning, you know, I really believe that we could create some great programming and some great classes. So what did that look like in your first year there? Well, my first year we had, uh, there was an, we had a staff of two. And right, Susan Ty. Susan Ty. And then we had the New Venture Challenge class. And we had launched, I think somebody before me had launched something called the New Venture Lab, but that was where, where our students would work with entrepreneurial companies as part of class. But that was kind of floundering. So Steve asked me to take that over. And I said, I don't know how to teach. And he said, well, you'll get the hang of it. So I have to tell you, it was a little rocky the first couple of years. And then I really learned how much I loved being with the students and how I actually did like developing curriculum, developing pedagogy. So uh, I taught this New Venture Lab class. And then I sat through, in the first year, I sat through Steve's New Venture Challenge class. And that was 1999. And I said, this is really interesting. I could also do this. And so one of the things that was happening then, if you remember the dot-com era, we were getting 75, 85, 100 applications for New Venture Challenge, and Steve could only have 15 teams in the class. And I said, I think we need to have a second section. And I think that we need to you know, think about doing this where our part-time students could also participate because the part-time students couldn't come to a class in the middle of the day. And so I think in the year 2000, we actually launched the second class. And the first year we did it on campus, but later in the day, so part-time students could attend. And then we moved it to Gleacher the following year, and it, we've had now have the second class at Gleacher ever since. And, and that's the class that Mark and I have been teaching the last several years. And so that brings us to close to 2002, where you got the first gift from Michael Polsky, the $7 million to name the Entrepreneurship Center. Um, so how transformative was that to actually have, you know, some capital behind you? That was pretty transformative. I have to tell you, you know, when I joined the center, they had this limited grant from the Kauffman Foundation that Steve mentioned earlier. But then I found out that to do any of the things that I wanted to do, I had to have more money. <laughs> and so, you know, I had been used to going out and raising venture capital money for my startups. And that was pretty difficult. And I'm thinking, how difficult is it going to be to raise money for a not-for-profit, a nonprofit organization? Uh, and I found it actually wasn't as difficult as raising money for a startup because people are very loyal to their alma maters. You know? And so what we needed to do was identify the successful entrepreneurs who had graduated Booth and really saw the opportunity to support entrepreneurial initiatives at Booth. And so working with the alumni development, you know, we came up with a prospect list. And one of the names in that list was Michael Polsky. And I, yeah, I should add too, before that, you know, Ed Kaplan, who it's the Ed Kaplan New Venture Challenge. Ed had been one of the people that uh, I had talked to. And then Ellen had, you know, ended up talking to him a lot as well in terms of figuring out what to do with entrepreneurship. And then, uh, in terms of the new venture challenge. So Ed was one of the people who has been generous over the years. And then uh, Mac McCormick, Bob Mac McCormick, gave a gift for, I think, our second uh, professorship in uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, Joe Neubauer was somebody 
who was pushing. So you had you had Ed, Joe, Bob, uh, or Mac were all you know pushing us to do things. And Michael sort of came out of nowhere. He was, uh, I think, you know, Ted Snyder must have met him and uh, you know introduced him to us, and that really was uh, was huge because Michael not only gave us money. Uh, but he's been very involved and he's pushed us and uh, really helped us uh, move things forward. I'd like to add a couple of things here to Steve's comments. The first money that Steve got, the first prize money did come from Ed Kaplan. And he was, you know, agreed to continue giving money the next couple of years. And I came on board and I realized that we needed to increase the prize money. So <laughs> I spent I spent a lot of time nurturing Ed Kaplan and we got it to 50000 a year for probably the next 10 years until I finally got him to commit to creating an endowment for this money. I think after about, you know, annual gifts over about 12 plus years, he finally decided it was institutionalized enough that he could commit to endowment. And regarding Michael, uh, there's a woman in our alumni development office who actually did the first call on Michael Polsky and she was seeking somewhere. She didn't have, she did not have a clue what his net worth was. And she was seeking between maybe half a million and a million dollars. And he, actually was the one who said, well, how much would it cost to name the whole center? <laughs> and she came to me and to Ted Snyder and said, how much should we ask for? And we came up with this number of $8 million, thinking this was totally out of the realm of possibility. And then Michael said, that sounds good. I want to meet Stephen Allen. And I think that's how that evolved. And then what was next after you got the money? So what you have to understand is when the way endowments work is you don't just get the money. The <laughs> money comes in over time, comes in over time, sometimes you know, six, seven years. And so we had a little bit more money to work with. And you know, it allowed us to bring on more staff. It allowed us to you know, really broaden the New Venture Challenge program. You know, one of the things that's been really important in New Venture Challenge is having these, I call them paid coaches. You know, p- people who are supplementing the faculty members and working with the various teams and providing guidance and mentoring to the teams. Was that always a piece of the New Venture Challenge, the coaches component? No, it wasn't. When we when we started it, you know, I basically, you know, the first couple of years that that we ran it as a course the uh you know there were no coaches it was just you know it was just me initially and then it was ellen and me and we had the the classroom judges so we did bring people in from the get-go um but they you know my network certainly wasn't you know anywhere near what it is today so we had fewer judges and uh i don't think they were as high quality, and over time they got better and better. We brought Mark in. That was uh, that we hit we hit pay dirt on that uh, when we brought him in. So over time uh, it got better. And I'm not I'm trying to think when we when did we first you know start using actual coaches. So, so I think the I think the first coach we brought on was Waverly. Was Waverly, yeah. Yeah, you know, we, we brought her on as a faculty member to actually teach. The new venture lab class, which I decided I didn't want to teach anymore because I was focusing on developing a cases and entrepreneurship class and a private equity class and the new venture challenge class. And so I felt that I just couldn't have four classes. So she came in to do that. And we discovered what a great coach she is for presentation skills. She had actually been a PhD in drama 
She actually had worked for a consulting firm where she actually had to help people give presentations. So she was our first coach and she still remains today as our Uber presentation coach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was like 2003. I think she came on board. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was around then Mark, you know, she just helps everybody learn how to tell their stories better. And so she was our first paid coach. And then, you know, we started saying, you know, we need some more talent in marketing. We need some more talent in healthcare. We need, you know, get based, we need some more talent in technology. And so, you know, over the years, we've added, you know, a judge here, a judge there. And I think now we, on an average, have about... So we have six. six okay, coaches, six. Six or seven. Six, six coaches. Uh-huh. I, I, yeah, six coaches a year. Yeah, we're recording all these other stories, all these other podcast stories, and everyone has a Waverly story. Uh, she uh-huh. works away into every story. <laughs> Her feedback has been invaluable. And Waverly has an amazing ability to take someone's message and distill it down to the essence of what needs to be told. And she does it in a very memorable way. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, Colin, I believe when I believe when you were a student, you uh, went through a few Waverly sessions. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. She called me and my whole team dumbasses multiple yeah. times in our <laughs> private meetings. <laughs> no, but people remember her, and she is very, very effective at helping the team distill the differentiation to them, you know, and what makes them the essence of them. So the next thing I have on my list here is 2006. That's the year of Grubhub and Matt Maloney. Uh, so you know, how did Matt get into the class? I think it was Steve's class at the time. It's a great story, and I'm going to let Steve tell it. Yeah, so he, he applied, and uh, we, uh, you know, I read the plan. I didn't, I didn't read it too carefully because there were, there were a lot of delivery businesses back then that were kind of web delivery businesses. And I read it and I said, oh, this is just another web delivery business, nothing new here. You know, and and we did not let him in. And so uh, when he didn't get in, he like was very unhappy. And uh, he emailed me and he said, can I come talk to you? And uh, I said, sure. And um, he uh, came to my office and he said, you know, you have to let us in. And I said, but, you know, you're like, what's new? There's nothing new here. And, uh, and then he explained to me, you know, exactly what they were doing. Uh, and it turned out it was new. It was, it was a different model from what other people were using. And he actually had some traction. And I said, Matt, you're in, but would you please explain it better? Because I couldn't figure that out from your, you know, preliminary business plan. And he got in and uh, uh, he and his co-founder, uh, Mike, uh, figured out, you know, how to describe the business, what they were doing. And it, so it was, very, it was a very clever model and had big first mover advantages. They were first movers and uh, they ended up winning after having almost not gotten in. They ended up winning that year and uh, going on to, uh, to be, a, you know, a national brand and national success. And I'd like to just go on the record to say that I did initially want them to, <laughs> to be a new venture challenge, but I deferred to Steve's on this one. And what people don't realize is Matt had started the business uh, before he had actually come to Booth. He had already gotten his master's degree in computer science from the university and was working as a programmer when he came up with this, you know, kind of side hustle about what became Grubhub. 
And as he started to build the business, he realized he didn't know really how to build a business or run a business and convinced himself he should go get an MBA. So this all occurred in his first year as an MBA. And he was a part-time student at that time because he was working a day job while also doing this business at night and was basically convinced himself he needed to go to get his MBA to learn how to run this business. And it is, and he's quick to remind you know, Steve that he wasn't first accepted and he had to basically camp at Steve's <laughs> office to get in. And then he's also quick to remind that he didn't win. He was a co-winner. He actually split the prize with someone else. Yeah, yeah, but that's but that's winning. You know, again, you know, we tell our students, you know, we basically want everybody to win. And I mean, the nice thing about the new venture challenge is, you know, all the teams can be a success. Like nothing would make us happier than to have 10, 20 Grubhubs in a year. I'm not expecting that, but I'm I'm hoping for it. Um, there are two other things that are worth mentioning. First of all, like looking at a deal early stage, it is really hard to figure out what's going to succeed. And so in this case, you know, we got it right that Matt won, but the other first place team, I don't, you know, was not a big success. And, you know, some years the the big winner, the most successful team is, is not the winner of the new venture challenge. Sometimes, you know, the most successful team doesn't get into the finals. That's happened uh, once or twice. So number one, it's just really hard to figure out. So I, I messed up with, with Matt initially, but it's like, it's not you know un, so unusual. And, and number two, it also tells you though, it is really important if you're, if you're running a company, you know, you've gotta be able to explain what you're doing and sell it. And so part of what we, we do in the new venture challenge, you know, between, you know, among all of us is we help the students figure out, okay, what do you have? And how do you actually sell it to, you know, investors, but also to, to customers? So even after Matt won, did anyone have any idea how big Grubhub could become? Was it clear that like this one was special at all? Mark, you invested, right? You figured that actually, out. Actually, I met Matt in the, through the class, you know, because it was a technology thing and he was doing a lot of internet work. I had just sold my first business, which was an internet consulting, which became in the end was an internet consulting firm, although we did technology over the 20 years I ran it. And so I met him in this process and I thought it was special and I did invest early in his process. But the interesting thing is when he first came out of the MVC, he couldn't get any investors. He couldn't get any investment and he hustled around. He met with hundreds of, of investors trying to sell that idea. Um, and then he slowly but surely started building up the traction because he refined his model, you know, as time went on, but he never changed the focus of his business. And it is impressive how it continued to grow while still staying core to his two principles of what the original business was. But even then it's hard to say, you know, what took off. It, it did really well because of his maniacal focus and his tenacity of what he originally went out and premised himself on, being able to deliver food from any type of restaurant you want on a centralized ordering system. But I, I will say, here's where I, I will give myself some credit. So I, I messed up on letting him in. But then when he was raising money, I believe it was his Series A, I got a call from a venture investor. And this was like a year or two after he'd won the new venture challenge. And the venture investor said, he wasn't a good friend. He was someone I knew a little bit. And he said, you know, should I invest in this? And this is where I said, absolutely. 
And and I couldn't invest because Matt was still a student, and I don't invest in in current students, you know, regrettably. So I what I said to him is I said, look, I don't know if they're going to win or not, but it is a great venture investment because if they win and are really successful as they were, you'll make a lot of money, and if they don't win, they have won Chicago. So they had you know they had a lot of restaurants in Chicago, they had a lot of users in Chicago, and it was very sticky. You know, people at that time were not putting their credit card information into lots of different sites. They would pick one or two and then they'd order from it and it was it. And so Grubhub had won Chicago. And I said, look, if they don't win the other cities, they have won Chicago. Someone's got to buy them. You're going to make money. And then if they win the other cities, you'll make a lot of money. And literally after the IPO, this guy called me up and he said, you know, you may not remember. And I said, no, unfortunately, I remember. Uh, and uh, he said, but I want to thank you for telling me to invest. I invested because of you. And he made 60 times his money. So I got it wrong. I got it wrong initially, but then I then I like learned my lesson. Yeah, another thing that was interesting about Grubhub, I remember their presentation and they felt that if they were really, 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 really successful in five years, they could be a $50 million company. Right. Right. And they also said they only needed to raise 1.7 million right. and they were going to be profitable. <laughs> and they ended up raising $84 million before their IPO. And their hope was to sell for seven times revenue. Yeah, I don't know that anyone knew mobile was going to scale the way it did, but uh, they 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 did uh, you know ride the tailwind of mobile. But to your question, Colin, I think one of the things was in looking at how the stickiness of the business was. When Matt did his cohort analysis and first started going out and explaining it to a lot of West Coast venture firms, they didn't, they didn't really believe that his numbers could be that sticky. And once they figured out his numbers were that sticky, it really worked out well. Because once someone ordered, if they placed a second order, they were just as likely to place an 11th to 15th order. Wow. And then it was just the following year with Braintree and Brian Johnson. Uh, so what's the Brian story? How did he get in? So that was Ellen, because I, I had Matt in my section and Ellen had Brian in hers. So Brian you know, was applying with Braintree. Brian had experience in the financial payments industry. He actually, I think, was in this was selling uh, services to various customers. And, and you have to think back to 2007. And he was coming in with a, an idea for a payment platform which would be used for e-commerce and mobile payments. Now, the iPhone wasn't released until late June. The first iPhone wasn't released until late June 2007. And so we're looking at this plan and thinking, who's going to buy product on their phone? You know, I'm sitting there with my little flip phone saying, no way. But, you know, he did have you know, he, as we all know, even subsequent to this, is Brian's a visionary. And he really had this insight. He knew that these smartphones were going to be coming out, and he wanted to be the person who could dominate the mobile payment platform, which none of us really had a clue how that was going to work. So we let him into the class, and he, you know, he stumbled at first. You know, I had high expectations for him because I was pretty excited by what his vision was, but he did not know how to tell his story. And so, you know, Brian also has some wonderful Waverly stories because, you know, she really uh, got on his case. And after the first presentation, totally tore him apart. 
but helped him dramatically figure out how to, you know, tell his story so people understood what it was he was doing. And uh, he won that year. And it coincided, of course, with the launch of the iPhone. And he actually did start out with, you know, e-commerce, you know, on, you know, the computer, on websites, but uh, it morphed into, you know, the mobile area. You know, Brian, you know, unlike uh, Matt Maloney, you know, he didn't have, the company was still a concept when he went through the class. And he spent, you know, the first couple of years really bootstrapping it. He did not take any outside money. He did not want any outside money. He was extremely careful about having investors in his business and, you know, going out for funding until he got far enough along that he know, knew he could maintain control of the equity in the company. And so I remember bringing investors to him in those first couple of years saying, you know, I have somebody that might be interested in investing. He said, I'm not ready for investors yet, which I thought was a you know, very different strategy. And as we know, I'm not sure, Mark, do you know what year? Yeah, he won in 2007. I think it was 2000, late 2010. No, it was 2000, 2012 before he did an institutional round because we had a five-year limit and he waited five years and five months. Okay. I, thought, I thought it was a three-year limit and three and a half years. Limit of what? So we sort of learned over time. Initially, the prize money was just cash. And then after we'd done it a few years, we went to the students and said, you know, how would you feel if, if we turn the prize money into uh, a note for equity? And, uh, oh, they said, that'd be fine. We'd love to have University of Chicago as an investor. So then we turned it into, uh, you know, what's effectively a safe that we use today. And, um, but we put a five-year time limit on it so that if they didn't raise money for five years, then it expired. And uh, in Brian's case, he waited, you know, five and a half years and, uh, which is unfortunate because that would have paid off quite well. And then after that happened, we said, why, why did we put a time limit on it? So now, now there's no time limit. <laughs> um, and just to clarify the facts, Brian Johnson was in 2007, June 2007, when he won the NBC. He uh -huh. took on his first funding in December of 2010. So is it three years? And he okay. um, had a Series A for $34 million in June of 2011. Okay, so it must have been three years then. Right. I, I, I'm sure the original safe notes were three years, yeah. Steve. And they were, yeah, they were basically, if you got it, the notes read that here's the, here's, here, Brian Johnson, here's $25,000 for your new business, Braintree. If after three years you don't ha have you know, made it a business, you can just keep the money. Um, and so it triggered whenever he raised more than a million dollars of outside capital. And so he ended up not raising $3 million of outside capital, you know, before it expired. And so he, it expired. He got that as a grant, no equity tied to it. And then uh, six months, eight months after that, he ended up raising uh, his seed round. And then he went out six months after that for his series A. Yeah. Cause I guess that would have, you know, we made, I think 80 times our money on the Grubhub 25,000 and uh, we probably would have done the same on, uh, on Brian's. So that's why we, we got rid of the, of the limit. Yeah, now, now it's basically, it's <laughs> safe now. It's evergreen, evergreen. Uh, you know, and, and when speaking of the evolution of NVC, you know, the safe note concept is an evolution too. You know, as Steve said, you know, we would just give the cash away. And then we started looking at this and saying, we need to make this an evergreen program. 
know, we need to continue to have money to continue to invest in these businesses. And we should create a fund with the winnings or the, or the, the investments that we're making in these businesses. And it was controversial when we you know, approached the university sure, sure. about creating this. It was quite controversial because the university thought perhaps this is a conflict of interest. However, we uh, you know, got certain people in leadership to support us. We went forward with it, and now the university itself, and some of their other initiatives, like the Innovation Fund and so forth, you know, are doing something very, very similar. And it has become, it has helped us become an evergreen program because the money we've gotten back from these investments are now funding other programs for startups, like our accelerator pro, summer accelerator program, some of our NVC coaches, and so forth. A similar question on Brian: Was there any inkling after that year of what it could become? Not, not right away. As I said, I kept in touch with him for the first couple of years. You know, we would do check-in meetings and, you know, he was making progress, but, you know, I think he was still, still figuring out his business model and still, you know, developing the product. But uh, it was about, I don't know, about two or three years afterwards that it really, we felt it really start. At least I recognized that it was really going to take off. And I think it was, you know, coincident with the, you know, the takeoff of the iPhone, you know, the you know, adoption of that, the quick adoption of that. And, and then the, you know, it took businesses a long time before they could start building their mobile platforms mm-hmm. as well for purchasing. Yeah, because I was sporadically involved in the NBC at that time, I did not cross paths with Brian. But um, the fact that he was one of the first Chicago-based companies to gain an investment directly from Excel, a big West Coast fund was a big wake-up call to a lot of people of, wow, this is, this is some serious stuff here. I mean, he had Excel invest in his first round, which was unheard of for a Chicago company. We've had a few cents then, but it was a big wake-up call. The Braintree was doing something right. Then, so 2008 was the launch of GNVC for EMBA students. Uh, you know, why was that launch? What drove the need there? You know, given the increase or the increased visibility of NVC across university, you know, it was just really a natural thing that our executive program students would be interested in having a similar program, but it couldn't be done similarly because of the different way in which the executive program is held. You know, students don't meet on a weekly basis. They have very intense two-week sessions. And so the program there had to evolve differently. And I think Rob Gertner was the first if I remember correctly, and Steve, I may be wrong on this. Did he run it? I'm trying. I, yeah, I'm, I don't remember whether he did it. That's right. He was. I think he was running the executive programs, and he decided to do it. I think that's right. Yeah, I think he did it the first year or so, and it has evolved. At one point in time, it was it was kind of more like Steve's original NVC, where the students would uh, you know pitch their ideas and then you know, somebody would be selected as a winner, but there was not a course that necessarily went with it. Over time, the course developed. Today, Waverly actually teaches that course and it's become much more disciplined. They didn't have any prize money. So what we would do is take the winner of the GNVC and let the winner of the GNVC compete as a finalist in the NVC if they met certain criteria. And so we did have, in the early years of GNVC, we would have the winners of that track compete in the finals of the New Venture Challenge. And we have had a couple success stories out of that. But then, you know, as it continued to grow and they have, you know, GNVC and every all the, all the campuses, the Hong Kong campus, the Chicago campus, the London campus, 
and they have uh, you know three cohorts going, and now they have prize money, and they have a more extended curriculum around it, and they continue to have coaching sessions and finals, and they have you know it's a separate, separate, totally separate track now. And then 2011, uh, the SNBC launch. You know, what was the thinking behind that one? Yeah, so we were getting a lot of applications in New Venture Challenge for companies that would be nonprofits or for profits, but with a you know real social mission. So they not necessarily optimizing profits, but optimizing the mission. And it was decided that you know th- these could be good companies, but they didn't necessarily fit and would not necessarily be as competitive with some of the New Venture Challenge companies. And at the same time, Rob Gertner was working on developing what would eventually become the Rostandi Center. And so we actually had we actually had another employee at the university at the time, Linda Dara, and she and Rob Gertner worked together, and I think believe they created the first SNVC event. Again, you know, these things evolve. I don't remember if it was a formal class or not, but you know, it started pretty limited. And then again, they have evolved to have a very similar program like like New Venture Challenge with you know the same time frame, the same coaches, coaches, prize money, and so forth. That is that is correct. That is how it evolved. And I think it turned into a course pretty quickly. I, I don't yeah. think it was yeah. I, I think it was pretty quick. And it's at second year it was a course. And yeah. that's right when I was coming into the university and I, I sat on as a coach and a mentor for it for the first three years. So yeah, when do you enter the picture here, Mark? When do you want to? <laughs> I just um how yeah. did I get you? I, he was an in-class. I'll judge. tell you what I, was, I know exactly how I got into the picture. Okay, um, go ahead. Okay. So I had started my business very early in like 84 and ran it for 20 some years through the dot-com and everything. We took a public consultant and everything. Then I was doing another business from 2004 to 2011. And that business, we were selling it. Um, what happened was Google had offered to license some of our content, but when we learned what Google was going to do, we decided to sell the business. And so it was a company that was based in New York, even though I was in Chicago, but the majority of our employees came from a merger from a company in Israel. And so we were basically, we announced the sale on a Friday night. It got picked up Sunday morning in the Jerusalem Post because it was an Israeli company. The Wall Street Journal picked it up on a Sunday and ran it in the Monday paper. I was coming into Steve's class to be a judge for his class. And he said, hey, I saw the announcement in the paper this morning about your business being sold. What are you doing? I said, I just sold the business on Friday night. It's a public company. It's going to take us at least 90 days to close it. I'm not doing anything other than getting this business closed. I want to sell this thing. And he was jokingly making a comment saying, you should come teach. You do a really good job in there. People like interacting. You should think about teaching. I was never in my wildest dreams thinking about being an academic in any way or shape or form, but it was intriguing to me. A few weeks later, I ran into Linda Darrell, who was at Booth, but now at this point was back running entrepreneurship at Kellogg, who said, hey, I saw in the paper that you're selling your business. Have you thought about teaching? Love to have you come up here and teach because we're putting together all these adjunct positions of really practical, experienced people who are not academics to talk about and teach entrepreneurship. You should think about it. 
So now I had an offer from two of the top business schools in the country to do something in entrepreneurship. And what I discovered is what Ellen and Steve already knew. Teaching is a lot of fun, but it also gives you a certain amount of flexibility. Although I'm trying to, I'm a little bit more flexible than they are. I decided I wanted to teach for a quarter, take off a quarter, teach for another quarter, and take off another quarter. Kind of like a flexible lifestyle kind of play. And so that's what I now do. I, and so with Steve's encouragement and then thinking about, do I want to go to Northwestern or go to Booth? There's a world of difference between, while the schools are very similar in the ratings, I find the Booth students far more quant oriented. Being an engineer, I, I, that hit me better than the more qualitative kind of touchy-feely you just get a lot at Kellogg. So I enjoyed, Booth was a natural for me. And so I came in and started teaching. Um, I, you know, when I was sitting down with Steve, he said, what do you want to do? And I identified an issue that I saw in the New Venture Challenge at the time, which was students to get about halfway through the class and say, okay, now we're going to start selling our solution and finding out that customers weren't really liking what they were selling. And so we came up with the idea of before you build it, why don't you ask customers what their problem is? Get to understand the problem from the customer's point of view and how to understand the pain that they're facing and then build a solution to solve that problem. And so we created a class which was originally called D4. Um, then we renamed it to Entrepreneurial Discovery. And that's what I've been teaching for the last nine years, along with the opportunity to do the MVC with Alan and Steve. The um, other thing that I think is really important about the course that Mark has developed in his teaching is that oftentimes it's kind of the pre-NVC course that a lot of these NVC teams have taken. You know, they'll do in the fall quarter, they'll do the customer discovery class. And as they go through that process, they'll realize whether they have a business opportunity or not. So oftentimes many of the NVC teams that apply will have taken Mark's course in the spring. So it's sort of like a pre-NVC class. Well, what's interesting though, is the classes become very aimed towards first years. And what now is happening is everyone thinks the MVC is so successful because we have an amazing class. And it, the process is amazing in itself. But what's more amazing is it's a culmination of their entire booth career. And so what you'll see a lot of it, and I know, Colin, you're an example of this, where basically they would come in and then their first quarter of their first year, they would take entrepreneurial discovery. It's a very competitive class. I'm very lucky that a lot of students like it. But they'll take that and then they'll come up with a rough idea of what they may or may not be want to do. And some of them take the class project, but a majority of them already have an idea of what they're going to do. And they'll then take other courses, entrepreneurial selling, building the new venture, entrepreneurial strategy, commercializing innovation, and which will give them new skills. And a lot of times they will take and apply it to within their same business, refining and enhancing their business. So they've got this snowball effect from all these courses that they took a booth going through their two years of taking the example of the full-time students through their two years of booth. And then they'll culminate with the NBC at the, the final quarter of their second year. And I mean, no one perfected that more than Dave Ravi did with uh, Tavala. I think he took his, uh, what was called Maestro at the time through six classes within booth and basically getting a rallying. So when he came into the NBC, he was just a natural Snowball was already rolling. Everything he had already thought through, he had worked out in other classes of booth. And, but we get that all the time. People are like, wow, the MVC is so amazing. It's amazing because it's a culmination of all that they learn at booth coming into, two, you know, into one big spearhead. And, and it's funny because Professor Capital will get up at the beginning of the quarter and say, Just, we will teach you nothing. 
but you will learn a lot. And the reason that that's the case is because they will be pulling practical experience out of all their other classes and applying it in the MVC to make that difference. So 2012, the College New Venture Challenge launched. What was the thinking behind that? The MVC, I was just new at Booth, and the MVC was doing really, really well. And it was obviously already at that point had 15 years under its belt. We, the reputation was already being built. Grubhub was already becoming like our poster child. And it was becoming, it was very well known for us being a program. But there were other parts of the university that said, we want to be able to do something as well. And we had seen how it expanded from the NBC to the GNBC to the SMBC. College was a natural. And so we basically put together what started as a program and eventually became a class, taking our learnings that class is important. And we launched the College New Venture Challenge, which is focused on primarily undergrads. And that has developed, we've done it now for nine years. It's developed into its own program. And a couple of years ago, we actually found the need. Well, it seems like every NBC team always says, I wish I could have more tech people. And so one of the things which, you know, I I went to school at the University of Illinois, and I'm very aware of the strength of the engineering school down there. And I saw an opportunity because the engineering school would always try to work with the business school down at U of I. And they just, it didn't quite gel, but we were able to get an introduction between the Dean of the engineering school and the Dean of Boo School back when I was first starting in 2011 or so, 2012, because the Dean of the Boo School had actually gone to U of I and got his PhD there. And so they, they knew each other a little bit. And so it became clear that we could figure out a way to get them to work together. When the College and Venture Challenge came along, it was natural to let some of the undergrad kids reach across to their peer students at the university. So much so in the last few years now, we have a class where it's an engineering class from the University of Illinois. The students will take a class, an honors class in Chicago, and they will actually participate in the College and Venture Challenge side by side with the college boost students. And now that it's been there for a little bit, integrated together. So we'll have teams in the CNBC that are two U of I students and a U of C student, or two U of C students and a U of I student, or two and two. I mean, and it's the combination. Because one of the things that really is so helpful is to figure out how to put together these cross-school teams. And it's a powerful combination. And this this year, in fact, the college New Venture Challenge teams, you know, a couple of them would have been competitive in the the real New Venture Challenge. It uh, has been, uh, you know, uh, I think a big success. And I think, you know, over time, we're likely to have some big wins. And I guess we did. We had QB from uh, early on just yeah. was sold for, uh, you know, uh, allegedly 100 million dollars. Yeah. And, and, and Cuevos is doing well, too. Cuevos and, you know, is doing well, too. Yep. Cuevos was on Shark Tank, right? So right. on the real Shark Tank, and uh, they uh, they actually got investment. So and we've actually had quite a few teams, both from the SNBC MVC and GMV, I'm sorry, and the CNBC all be on Shark Tank. So I mean, we've, we've had a, a few alumni that have been able to be on the show. So the AMVC is a new addition, is the newest addition to our family. And it, the, the, the founding of it is interesting and funny. We had a judge who sat in the NVC many times as a, as a judge, uh, both in class and also finals judge, by the name of Alex Meyer, who said, I really love this process. I like it so much, I'm going to create a process for Harvard. And I ended up creating the alumni version of the Harvard uh, Business Mind competition. 
And coincidentally, I had been a judge on it a few times. So I watched it as it matured and developed. And it started to do real well. And they had some real companies that were Harvard alumni, basically being entrepreneurial, coming out and building great businesses. And we're looking at it and saying, that's a really good idea. And Ellen said, wow, we should be doing it here. So we went out and took uh, an approach similar to what they took, which they actually got the idea by taking what we had. So it comes back full circle. So, so it, it also, you know, it was combined with the fact that I had been going out and talking to alumni all over the country. And I would get these alumni come up to me and say, you know, I've just left my corporate job and I'm starting a company. I wish I had been exposed to New Venture Challenge and the entrepreneurship courses when I was at Booth. And I would get this over and over and over again after people were out, you know, two, three, four years from school. And so, you know, when I heard what the HBS angels were doing, I said, you know, there must be something in here that we could do for our alumni. And, you know, one of the things we realized is that the Polsky Center just didn't have the resources to sponsor a full-scale New Venture Challenge. So we needed to get our alumni involved. So we said, we're going to create cohorts, you know, geographic cohorts, and we're going to get alumni in those locations to co-chair the events and to volunteer to work with teams, in the, in, both in you know, application and selection, and then coaching the teams through the process. And so that's what we've done. We have a cohorts in London, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, New York, Francisco, Chicago, San Francisco, Latin America, and Asia. Is that, is that three or yeah. I think that's six, actually. And so, um, you know, and that has, I think we're now in the third year of doing that. And we get, you know, we get about 50 to 60 applications a year from those cohorts. We accept somewhere between, you know, 25 to 30 of them. And, you know, it varies by region based on what that region wants to do in terms of supporting these teams. And it's been almost an all-volunteer effort. There's a lot of effort the Polsky Center does put into coordinating it and also to running these. We have semifinal events in each region, and then the people who win the regional events will be part of a finals event in Chicago or via Zoom, and there will be prize money associated with that too. And so we have we actually have raised you know a fair amount of money from sponsors for that too. And, and, and it's really been great because this tells our alumni that even if you – haven't had a chance to participate in entrepreneurship while you're at Booth, you know, once you've graduated, you still have an opportunity. And, and by the way, the other thing about ANVC is it's not just for Booth students, the entire university, any graduate of the university can apply. And so we've had a number of teams that have applied from other graduate schools, alumni and other college student alumni. That's also a secret about NVC. NVC no longer is just for Booth students. Anyone can take the um, MVC, apply to the NVC class. But that said, if they don't have a boost student, they're going to be severely challenged to being successful. History is not very good if you don't have a boost student. Correct. But if you are from another part of the university, let's say from the med school, and you can find a boost student that will basically be a, you know, a business partner in this new venture, it's a magical combination. And we've seen some really strong teams coming out of that. And as we look to the future, the MVC, I anticipate seeing more and more of that. As the university gears up, continues to gear up in its biome capabilities, in its medical capabilities, leveraging the med school, in its uh, quantum capabilities with quantum computing, with the crossover that we have to Argonne and Fermi, I think we're going to see a track or an ability to have more science-oriented and teams that will really rock our socks and what we've been able to think about it coming out of the NBC. 
I mean, it's the take the power of the MVC process and the intellectual depth of that capital, that intellectual capital, it really opens up a whole new way to look at this business. So everyone thinks it's just a class. It's very much not a class. It's a much longer period of time. Like what does the average NBC timeline look like for a team? So the timeline, like Mark said, it could actually start, you know, in their first year and end in their second year. But like for a given year in the fall, the we we have various events where we try to put students together with each other and with technology and the students do it themselves and so sort of the fall they're putting together the businesses they want to build you know in some cases matt you know he and uh, that'd be true of uh, uh caitlin smith they came to school with their businesses and then found other people to work with them in some cases they get the idea in the fall and then they or you know late in the fall and develop it but the think of the fall as the time to develop and and work on ideas and then at the end of January, they submit a preliminary business plan or feasibility summary. And that, you know, is what they submit. And that's what we select on. That's what I, you know, read of uh, Matt Maloney's and didn't select him, but that's, uh, that's what we do. And then we run it by the coaches and faculty. We run it by our finals judges and we make a decision in sort of toward the end of February, who's going to get in. And typically that means about 30 teams and we get, you know, the applications have been running, you know, 60 to 90. And uh, of those 60 or 90, we generally let in 30. And, And the very important thing about the new venture challenge, and this was probably, this was not true in the early days, but has been true, I think, since um, we started getting really successful is we only let in teams that have a chance. So every team we let in, there's something real there where they could become a real business. And that is really important because in the early days, we let in some teams, you know, in order to just to fill the class that really were kind of dead on arrival. And it is problematic when you do that because it's demotivating. It's demotivating for the students who don't really have a business because they figure it out pretty quickly. And it's demotivating to the mentors and to the judges. And that's why it is super important. And you know, we're at the point where we can do that. You only take in businesses that are real because that is super motivating. Again, it's motivating. The mentors say, gee, this is kind of interesting. This is fun. It's motivating to the judges motivating to us as faculty members uh, and it's motivating to the students they're motivated to do it and they motivate each other so that is like super important to the new venture challenge to have really good teams and then once we have teams once they're in at the end of february then we get going i'll let you know ellen or mark you can pick it up from there yeah i mean once they're in and even sometimes before they're in you know we start pairing them up with potential mentors or people that can help them. You know, we tell them that you can't wait until the spring quarter in order to start working on your business. I mean, you got to, if you're not working on it now, you have no chance when you get to the spring quarter. And so we really push them to do a lot once they get selected to new venture challenge to meet with the coaches, to meet with some external people. And, you know, I know just from this past spring break, all the students who reached out to me to, meet, you know, via Zoom before they started class to start, you know, getting contacts and so forth. But, you know, 
it it really you know picking up what Steve said, it's really a year long process. You know, and and even for some companies like a Caitlin Smith or a Matt Maloney, you know, they come here to school specifically because they want to work on their businesses and because of our reputation, they believe there's a rigorous process here to help them with their businesses. And so they will come and they will take courses like uh, entrepreneurial discovery and building an adventure before they go into new venture challenge and, and start building connections that way too. But it's, it's really, you know, I like to think of it as a year long process. And, you know, the first phase is really, as Steve said, is building, you know, building your ideas, building your team in the first part of the year. The second part is, you know, kind of flushing out your business model and, you know, putting together your feasibility summary and getting accepted. And then it's really going gung ho once you've been selected you know, to take advantage of all the contacts and networks that we have at our disposal and that they have at their disposals. Because the other thing we tell them is, you know, the New Venture Challenge now has a reputation and you can reach out. If you reach out to people and say, hi, I've been selected to Booth's New Venture Challenge and I'd love to talk to you about my business, people will answer the phone call. Amazing people will answer the phone call. We had, um, you know, a company called As a Nails in the competition a few years ago and I was connected to uh, Mary, Mary Dillon, <laughs> Mary Dillon at Alta, and I asked Mary, "Would you meet with my students?" I mean, how often does you know a student team get to meet with the CEO of Alta? And they, she was willing to meet, you know meet with them, and in many many other similar contexts like that. But and, and when you think about it, I mean, we actually kick off we at the end of February decide which teams are going to make the class. They spend the entire month of March which is before the actual uh, quarter starts, meeting with ju- the outside judges, getting feedback on their feedback, meeting with um, the professors, meeting with all the coaches. So they will have already had half dozen, 10 meetings before the quarter even starts. And what we remind them is the NBC class is a class unlike most classes of Booth. A lot of classes of Booth, you know, the professor is a world expert in their area. They get up and they talk at a, at a whiteboard and they teach a lot of material. And yours has a student copiously taking notes. And at some point throughout this quarter, you're going to say, okay, close all your books. Here's a, here's a quiz. Here's a test. And you're going to regurgitate what I taught you. And we're going to, I'm going to be able to judge how well you absorb what I, I have explained to you. And if you do really well, I'm going to give you an A. And if you don't do really well, I'm going to give you a B or C. And the NBC is not like that at all. We basically want to see all 30 teams be hugely successful because they become marketing to future students that say, hey, if you want to do entrepreneurship, you go to Booth or you can go to someone else because we want them, we want all 30 to be successful to let future students know no matter what your business is, if you come to Booth, we have the methodology. We have the, the classes, we have the professors that will help you take a business idea and make it an amazing business idea and help you as an entrepreneur become a more amazing entrepreneur. And we basically have that, that way of doing it. And that NBC is a way to do that. So we're rolling out everything we have. We will reach out to our contacts. We'll reach out to our entire network to make introductions. And as Ellen just pointed out, the ability for them to call up blindly to someone and say, I'm doing this. The NBC has developed such a reputation for quality that people will take the calls. It's just, it's an astonishing process. The, the, the other thing too that you know, we should mention is the actual class itself. is very much like Shark Tank before it was Shark Tank. And when we created Shark Tank, 
before Shark Tank was created. You know, where the, where the students, you know, really have to learn how to pitch their ideas. And as we talked earlier, you know, we have a presentation coach who helps them tell their story, but, you know, everybody's helping them learn how to tell their stories. They get incredibly constructive feedback in those classes from our outside judges who are investors and other entrepreneurs. And by the end of the New Venture Challenge, if nothing else, they will know how to tell their story and how to pitch to potential investors if they have a viable business. And that's, that's a true skill. I've learned that's a true skill. Let me, I, I want to add to that or, or, or highlight that. So the, the, the process, once, once you get in and we've you know, exposed you to our network, which is very valuable, that classroom period, which is you know, basically you know, 10 weeks, three months, is very intense. And that's also, a, a, I think, important that you have really tight deadlines and you absolutely have to perform. And so the students work really hard because they have deadlines. And then when they present, what you get, you know, Shark Tank, you're presenting to four or five people. And in Techstars and Y Combinator, you kind of present at the end. You don't, you don't present in this sort of crucible early. What is, what is I think, really differentiating about us, and, and I'm sort of puzzled more people don't do it, is presenting early to really smart people and to a bunch of them. And we have now somewhere between, you know, 10 and 20 people are in the room who are entrepreneurs or investors. You really get just bludgeoned is probably the wrong word. You you get intense criticism and it is so healthy to get that intense criticism early because you find out where your weaknesses are. And then, you know, that happens in April, the teams present and they're usually just shell-shocked. Oh my God, I didn't know that. And it is hugely beneficial. They pick themselves up, they fix things if they need to be fixed, they explain them better if they need to be explained better. And then when they present in May, they are like massively better. It is, it is almost magical how much better they are. And then the second time they present, they're also they're they're you know they get the the criticism, but it is much more you know focused, and the issues are kind of deeper. And then the teams take that criticism, and again they fix what needs to be fixed. They explain better what needs to be explained. And the top ten teams they present in the finals, and they are better again. And so it's an amazing learning experience because you get that withering criticism. And for the team, some teams actually discover they don't have a business. And uh, that's that's um, uh, unfortunate, but they're learning. So even the teams that, that don't succeed, we've kind of succeeded in that they've learned something. And uh, the teams that succeed have really been made much better off in uh, you know, at least, you know, a number of ways usually. And it is just a, a magical, magical process. You know, I, I've, I've had a number of alumni who are working on their Series A and their Series B rounds tell me that they're still using the same approach that they took in New Venture Challenge in order to build their pitch decks and tell their stories. And that, that this is a, gonna, a skill that becomes really important if you're an entrepreneur and you're out trying to raise money. Yeah, we, we call it... Critical but constructive feedback. <laughs> but it's pretty harsh. I've seen more than one team after the first round break out in tears about it. I mean, it's, it's, 
They feel, I mean, because they've poured four weeks before the quarter starts and then they get to the first presentation, they've worked hundreds of hours on it. They've got a polish to the nth degree and they come in to make this 10 minute presentation uninterrupted. They think they're crushing it. And then comes a 15 minute Q and A afterwards. And they're just, they're just dissected with this, this critical but constructive feedback. And then they, they take it back and then that's, it's the dissection and pulling it apart and re-sewing it back up that really gives them the opportunity to realize that a lot of it can be distilled away and it gets them more to the essence of what they are. I think one of the secrets of the presentations is we encourage them not, so many companies, so many entrepreneurs talk at a 50,000 foot level. We tell them to talk at a 500 foot level, get low, tell me things that no one else can tell me about your business. And really help them think differently about their business in a way that organizationally, they get the essence of their business across in 10 minutes. Which when NVC first started, they had 20 minutes to present. It was 20 minutes and five minutes of Q&A. And we totally, and then it got down to 12 and 13. And then our 15 and 10, then it got 12 and 13. Now it's at 10 and 15. Maybe someday it gets to eight and 23. We'll see. Or eight and 20, but we'll see. But I mean, it's, the ability to distill it down so you can tell it in a small window means you got to get to the essence of your story. It was so agonizing when we were at 20 minutes, especially <laughs> when we'd be at the end of 20 minutes and Waverly would say, but what is it that you do? <laughs> we, we've sat here for 20 minutes and we don't have a clue what you do. And, 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 so, and some of the student teams at 20 minutes felt like 20 hours because you were like three minutes into it going, this is going nowhere. <laughs> but they had 17 more minutes to be fair. <laughs> you wanted to just roll your eyes on it. So in 2015, NVC was ranked as the number one university accelerator program in the nation. And then it was also ranked alongside top accelerators like Y Combinator and Techstars. So you know, every MBA program has some variation of NVC nowadays. What do you attribute Boost NVC program success to? What makes it different? I mean, it's the things we just talked about that Again, I've been I've been sort of surprised that other schools don't do it this way, but it's this year-long process. It's having the course. And I was just talking to a friend of mine at a at another very top business school that just had their new venture challenge, and they don't run it as a course. I, I was saying, like, Paul, run it as a course. Yeah, why aren't you doing this? Here's Here's what we do, and and they just don't do it. So it's it's sort of a mystery, but it's it's the combination of a year long course. People really point to it. Number one, number two, we really unleash the network for them, and that's really important. And that just gets better over time because more and more people are in our network. More and more people are former students, and it's very powerful. Then you have the presenting in the arena and getting this very brutal but constructive feedback and then number the final thing is like huge time pressure you gotta perform and those forces are very powerful and the more you do it the better you get so we've gotten better at it over time to the point where it's it's really just i mean it's magical the other thing that uh, is really important that Steve mentioned earlier is the selection process. Yes. You know, the, the, the inputs are what create the outputs. And so 
we select teams that we really believe have the potential to be real businesses and that have the potential to launch at the end of NVC if they're successful through the process. And so that's, you know, that feeds into these rankings, right? I mean, the rankings are looking at how many companies have come out that have been successful, how much money have they raised and so forth. And that's one of the reasons why I think New Venture Challenge has continuously been successful. In addition to everything else Steve has said, of course. And I'll add something Mark said earlier. The other thing you get once you have this virtuous circle, then you get people coming to the school in order to do this. So the selection is not only the selection of, of who we let into the new venture challenge, but the selection is who actually comes to the school in order to do it. And that's one of the points I was going to make is it's obvious, but it's often overlooked. The quality of our students are so high. So, I mean, you, you start with top quality students who are extremely bright, who absorb this and it just does really, really well. You know, just an ability for them to just flourish is natural within this process. But it's the quality of our students not to be overlooked. So the prize money is a big component as well. Uh, thanks to Rattan Kosa and others, uh, is a million dollars in 2020. Uh, how big of a component do you think that is? I think the prize money is really important. I think it's one of the reasons the students work so hard. One, to get into NVC and to get into the finals. And, you know, a number, number of these prizes or for specific types of companies or specific types of industries. So it's, you know, everybody has the potential who gets into the finals to be a prize winner. And, and I think it's also important to mention that, you know, in addition to the million dollar prize that we have worked ourselves up to over all these years, so we have a lot of non-cash incentives. We have a number of sponsors who give free services to our teams. So they, there's legal services, you know, that's real money to the teams if they don't have to pay legal services to incorporate their companies. We have, you know, Amazon provides web hosting services to teams. And so there are a number of what I call in-kind sponsorships that add to the million dollars. And so I think it's a, you know, a huge incentive to these teams to work hard, get to the finals and win something. And, and what's happened over time, which is, which is why it was a million dollars last year, is we didn't walk in with that amount of money, as, as Mark said, and what's happened is we've, we've made good choices of our finals judges, and the finals judges, after they see the teams, uh, have been kicking in money into those teams in the finals judging. And what uh, we decided to do this year, and, and this was, uh, I think Mark, Mark gets the credit for this, uh, is we said, well, why don't we just ask them to commit ahead of time? rather than while they're there. So what we've done now is we've gotten commitments from our judges for over a million dollars going into the finals. And so what will happen is that they don't have to choose their team till they see the finals, but they're committing, they will give some money to those teams. And so we're gonna see, we're walking to the finals with, with over a million and uh, could end up you know, a fair amount more than that. We'll see uh, if the teams are are good. But there's that's a real incentive for the teams to want to be in the finals. And, and the other the other incentive to the teams is just to present to these finals judges. You know, it's a really a who's who type of list of people. And and then, and then many many of these judges will volunteer to work with the teams and mentor the teams after the competition. And you know, as as you know, Mark said, Mark was a judge for a while, and he got him connected to Grubhub. And uh, there are many other stories like that. 
And that's a great question, Colin. But I think the thing to think about in this overall, we've always had good prize money. I mean, if you're a startup, even back when our prize pool was $30,000, if you could get $10,000, $20,000 to be focused on your business, that's a great starting point. But over time, because of Rattan's gift of saying we want to give $150,000, at least $150,000 to the first place team, and we want, and then others with like the Moonshot Awards and, and other specialized gifts, it became clear that the money was incentive enough and changing enough that these businesses could go and run, have a little bit of runway before they had to go out and go fundraising. Because as you know, an entrepreneur knows, fundraising takes a lot of time. So we wanted them to come out of the MVC with all this feedback and have some runway to basically finish building out their business you know, and what the way it was envisioned out of the final presentations to really then go on and start talking to people about what it takes to invest, to so give them a little bit more runway. But the other piece about it is, it is a lot of schools out there that do, quote, business plan competitions and, quote, business plan accelerators. And I used to be a junkie of them. I mean, before I came to Booth full-time, I used to be at the UIUC one. I used to do the one, I was at Harvard's uh, Angels. I was at Booth, I was at Kellogg. I, I, I did a lot of them. And I was always amazed, you know, the quality of Booth is what really became clear to me. But, you know, the money does make a difference. And so, you know, when it first started what, 10 years ago, we were giving away 75,000, which was barely enough to give everyone a little bit of money. And so when we were able to start seeing it walk up, we've now given away over four and a half million dollars in the entire, in the 25 years of the MVC, not counting this year's. This year's will be, you know, I'm willing to bet closer to $6 million than anywhere else. Not not this year, but you mean a million and a half? No, no, six million in total. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in one year. <laughs> no. But what this, let's be clear. A few years ago, when with my art cash, when we gave them $365,000, they got an investment of $365,000 for winning the MVC. That was the largest first place prize pool for any incubator, any accelerator, university affiliated or not. That was the largest prize to a first place team. That was a game changer. Now that we're getting over, we're going to be over, over a million close to, and I'm probably even over a million and a half for this particular year, we will be the largest business plan competition in the world. And that speaks to the quality of our students. It speaks to the quality of the program, but it speaks to the institution that we've created here with the NVC. And so it really sets the stage that this is a game changer not just for the students, but for the university as well. Because our goal here is very simple. When you think entrepreneurship and the grad school level, there's Booth and then there's all the others. And that's what we're going to, and NBC is the exclamation mark that says that. This is one thing we didn't really talk about is you know, the New Venture Challenge has spawned a lot of you know, founders and CEOs, but it's also spawned a lot of venture capitalists that have been very successful. Are there any others that you want to, you know, touch on or talk about? So one of our participants in the New Venture Challenge uh, was Ko Nakamura. And he participated, I think, three times, twice as a student and once once as an alum, and just was amazing. He He showed up the first year he participated, and here was a person who was like, as entrepreneurial as anyone you'd ever see. And it was just amazing. He was from Japan, 
where it's like someone who's, you know, he would be like super entrepreneurial in the US. And then he was from Japan where they're not generally so entrepreneurial. He was just like a complete outlier. And his new venture challenge teams ended up not being successful, but he ended up understanding, he loved the entrepreneurship. He uh, decided ultimately to be a venture capitalist. And he now is, he, uh, is a co-founder of Sozo Ventures, which what their strategy is, is they take US companies that are scaling and bring them to Japan. And the fund invested, he invested in Coinbase, he invested in Zoom, he invested in Square, he invested in Palantir, he invested in Fastly, and it's a very, very successful fund. And he is now a judge for the finals, and he is a, a supporter of the New Venture Challenge. But that's a, it's a good example of somebody who was in the New Venture Challenge, didn't win, but it really helped his career and and you know taught him some things that he now i think uses in his uh, investing life and coast got a great eye for for talent i mean you know obviously we've seen and professor kaplan has research that speaks to the focus and power on the team but coast got an amazing eye for meeting an entrepreneur and saying this is a not only a good idea this is a great entrepreneur and betting on the entrepreneur and has really done a great job and is investing with that. So, so I, I, th- I think the takeaway here, Colin, is that even if people don't go on to start businesses at a new venture challenge, the skills they develop can really help them in many different areas, particularly on investing in entrepreneurs, but can also help if they go into corporations and focusing on a lot of the innovation efforts that are going on in companies these days. These can be, you know, th- these skills can be very valuable. So where do you go from here? You know, what's next? What does the future of NVC look like? I think we keep, you know, we're the process is very good. We keep doing what we're doing with the booth students. And uh, I think what would be, you know, ideal is to do more with the university and more with, you know, sort of deep technology and marry uh, our MBA students with technology from the university but it's, it's just doing more of what we do and doing it better. All right, that is it for this episode. If you could do me a huge favor really quick, please go to your favorite podcasting app, often Apple Podcasts, and rate and review our show. This gets the show recommended to more folks and it also helps us get bigger and better guests for you to listen to. Take care.